0: Hello, AWS reInvent. Uh, My name is Gerard Bartolome, and I am the principal data platform engineer for Sweetgreen. Um, We are a fast, casual, farm-to-table food chain that specializes on sustainability and simplicity within healthy food. Um, Today, I'll be talking about how Sweetgreen lives within our data lake, uh, specifically our object store in AWS, um, Amazon S3. So we believe, as a food company, a sustainable food company, whatever you put in your body basically has a direct impact within the community, within the individual, and also within the environment. These five pillars that you see on the screen basically enables our food ethos to serve the highest quality food possible. So within our data ecosystem, what we have we have, since we are a food and beverage company, we have quite a bit of unconventional data that doesn't necessarily align to the digital side of things. Um, we have 31 plus data sources that live within our ecosystem, back and forth, interacting with our object store and our services um, that align more on the FNB sector. Um, that can be farm data within weather, soil, or health of a vegetable. That can be um, a wholesale distributor all the way to our POS, to our CRM, to our chatbots, to our clickstream user behavior within our iOS, Android, and web platforms. Um, We still follow the same ETL, ELT principles of um, kind of pipeline processing, but more catered to the data lake. And since our data, um, our tier one data, is basically as raw as it can be immutable, um, what we do instead of the T for transformation, we call it translation. So we're not technically transforming this immutable raw object. What we're really doing is we're translating it and representing it in a different state to go into a redshift cluster, to go into Aurora, to go into document, uh, to a document store like DynamoDB. Um, we are somewhat of a polyglot team. Um, my mantra has always been, don't adapt the language to the data. Um, data processing, especially if you're a downstream consumer, Um, there's no one and one all end all solution Um, so we try to basically have open source solutions within the distributed framework uh, within computation and languages like Java Scala and Golang um, which we use quite a bit to do a lot of this processing within multi processing environments Um, within those things the way we process is basically we have All these different data structures from unstructured protocol buffers json to database result sets Um, we want to be able to be autonomous and adaptable and that's kind of the theme that i'll be talking about Um, the way our data is since we are downstream consumers we build our own native applications, homegrown, so we're able to adapt as fast as we can, as as fast the data grows, and also as fast as the data changes. Because all you all here have had problems having changes on on an upstream level and then seeing it downstream and having to be able to to adapt that code base. Um, Before we get to the the translation and the load process, um, the way We think of security and the way we handle security is within the basic IAM roles. Um, We are the stewards of our data. So we take security and privacy to, we're pretty vigilant about it. Um, So the way we do it, and user is synonymous to basically uh, a service, an application, or a human. So within our users, um, we basically have the IAM role aspect of things. Once you've logged in with an, with an MFA, you're assigned an IAM role. So within that IAM role, it's basically a gateway sort of policy within our, our ecosystem. Once you get in, you're basically assigned into an IM group. So that IM group basically has specific ACLs that are tied to it, specifically for our verticals. So now our verticals, since we are a multi-dimensional team, our IM groups range from both ML, data science, BI, to infrastructure. All those different verticals have their own specific IM groups within IM policies that specifically can only access different services within their domain. Um, we also have another one where if you are a user and you want to directly go into our, our, pri- our private subnet domains within a, a private util box or an EMR cluster to do Spark Shell to be able to do discovery, we give, the ac- we give access to the user to be able to SSH via their own key pair Um, to get into these machines. Now that's handled by our bastion hosts. So our bastion proxy basically is the gateway from our public domains to our private subnets where all our core services live. So now that we kind of got security on hand, um, this is how our transformation or translation services kind of work. We have several core services that we use to be able to transform data. Um, A lot of that, like I said, lives within our private subnets. Um, Nothing can come in and out of our data lake that's public. So our data lake is basically all private. We don't expose anything to the public. All our objects are private. Um, It's also tagged with standard AES-256 encryption, which is the AWS standard. Um, So that interacts with our private services. Um, A lot of our private services, since we've created these native applications, live in containers. So we're able to deploy these containers a lot faster when things need to be iterated. Um, We use AWS ECS Fargate to handle a lot of the manage aspect of the resources. Um, Same thing, you know, we build it within Terraform and then we, we deploy it into ECS. Um, we also have Lambda invocations. So now these Lambda invocations are all within the private subnets. Um, the way it's able to talk to our public is basically within which is our vendor integrations, our webhooks, our Kinesis Stream applications with an API gateway, um, is within common um, data in transit security practices. Now that could be from HTTPS to TLS, also to AWS v4 signature authentication. But to have that extra layer also, we use a lot of AWS's uh, secure token service, which allows a temporary token to be basically instantiated when you're doing a get call or a put call within our object store. Um, another core service that we do use and that we love um, is Amazon EMR, uh, specifically um, Amazon Spark 2.4. Uh, um, no, no, Amazon, sorry, Spark 2.4. Um, so same kind of patterns, we have a act gateway that basically controls our egress out, nothing comes in. Um, basically, we use Spark to be able to, to do a lot of things. Basically, do Spark streaming within Kinesis or Kafka, um, munge data up from API calls, or basically trying to represent um, the data within our object store into formats where we can put it in as, like, say, ORC format within a Presto backend to be able to enable our self-service tools. Um, You can see within the processing layer, all those are basically triggered um, within a a scheduler or a task aspect of things. Um, We are quite open source, so we use Airflow to to do that. Um, So this processing layer basically handles all the Spark submits, our step functions within EMR clusters to be able to interact both within the data lake and out of the data lake. Um, So how do we use this data? We have two classifications of S3 buckets. We have S3 Standard. Um, We are not technically a big data company yet. I mean we're still somewhat of a startup so we only have you know a hundred some terabytes within our data lake. Um, So we still consider a lot of things hot. So within that we have S3 Standard and we use that quite a bit since the way we think about our services is everything is ephemeral. So basically all our services could die everything still lives within the object store. So we have the ability to to always have hot data to put into a document store or to put into an MPP or to put into something that's malleable to a different service. Um, IA, which is our infrequent usage, is basically more lookup. So anything that is a key value lookup or anything that doesn't necessarily change a lot that can be persisted into like a database um, that doesn't necessarily have to be accessed um, quite a bit, we put that into an S3 IA bucket. So that segues to how we basically use this data. So we use this data in same kind of fashion. We have private data and then public data. So then private data, that's what our fleet uses because we have 100 plus one stores that basically use our insights. We have Tableau basically to report and analyze data with insights within our corporate. Um, We have self-service. So that self-service, as I mentioned earlier, is a Presto backend EMR cluster that runs Apache Zeppelin, which is a notebooking um, feature, and also uh, Hadoop U, which is a, UI, a SQL UI. Um, so that's all basically munched up using Amazon Redshift. So our MPP consolidates all this data within our object store and basically creates a, a core data warehouse structure. So we're able to output this into Tableau reports and to output this into a kind of a data warehouse structure within our, our self-service tools. From a public subnet, uh, I talked about basically our integrations with webhooks and endpoints within our vendors, um, and also with also streaming. Um, we also have this thing called Sweet Green OS. It's basically a suite of OS tools that's data driven to be able to help our operational aspect of our hundred plus stores. Um, a great example of that is we have a data driven algorithm that basically predicts how much food we should cook per day, per time period, and in increments. Um, the reason why that 's so important for us is because we want to be able to be sustainable and also be cognizant about food waste, plus we also want to have the integrity of food fresh so our customers know that we 're basically presenting the best food possible lastly and i 'll talk a little bit about this briefly um, we are a California company, so we are going to be we 're going to have to be compliant with a law coming up in California, which is called CCPA, or California Consumer Privacy Act, that basically has to ensure our data lake is fully anonymized. Um, So what we do, and what we have, is we basically have an anonymizer application that's backed by EMR Spark, and what it does is it basically takes any type of format or structure. You can put binary data in there, you can put result sets from a database, you can put um, basically dynamic JSON, What it does is it takes all those different aspects of structures, um, passes it through a regex pattern um, algorithm and also um, indexes within our data catalog. And based off of what it finds, um, we're able to mask all this data out and then assign it a global unique identifier from our document store, which is our our ID service, um, our private ID service before it gets to the data lake. So once it gets to our production data lake, everything is already anonymized. And we reference everything within a global identifier that lives within our, our secure document store. Um, that was a little kind of synopsis. Um, if you all want to hear more about this, um, I'm here for a week for the whole conference. And these are the things that uh, this is a pretty important thing, especially for California. If you all want a, a more deep dive, please just tap me. And I'll be happy to, to you know to kind of go step-by-step step on how we basically anonymize data within Sweetgreen. Um, lastly, uh, this is a plug for us. We're, we're only as good as our talent pool. So if you are interested in, you know, in a dynamic kind of company where it's, everything is somewhat still unconventional and you're, you're able to grow in a, in a blank canvas, um, we're hiring on the engineering, both on the data and the backend and end side. Um, thank you. And I'll hand it over to John.
1: Okay, great. Thanks, Gerard. Um, So um, I'm going to switch gears, and uh, Gerard was very specific around um, some design patterns and usage patterns and uh, key things to consider. I'm going to broaden it a little and talk maybe a little more generically about some foundational best practices when you're building a data lake. So I'm John Mallory. I've been at AWS about three and a half years on the storage business development team. So essentially, you know, Amy did a good job of defining the data lake, but one of the best practices to start with is to start to think of functional blocks when you think of your design. Um, you know, we've seen obviously a cloud best practice evolve to move from these big monolithic application stacks to a collection of microservices because it allows you to be much more agile and evolve in a uh, you know, much more rapid uh, fashion when you want to innovate. And so if you start to think of your data lake as these key functional blocks, you can take that same approach where S3 becomes the data foundation where your data is durably stored, it's persistent, it's the source of truth, but then you can innovate around that data at the pace that makes sense for you as you know, a group of developers or as your business needs and add in new capabilities, new services, adopt new best practices as you need to when things like privacy acts or new governance rules come into place. So you aggregate the data in S3. You obviously have to think about management and security and this is core capability. It's probably not going to evolve a lot, although we're always adding new capabilities to start to do things like attribute-based controls of data over time and get more granular in your permissioning, but um, that's really foundational. Um, Data ingestion is definitely going to evolve because you're always going to be adding new types of data, new data sources, so you want to make sure that um, you can plug in the right tooling to do that efficiently. Um, Catalog and search is also foundational. I mean that's what really separates a data lake from a storage platform because if you don't have views of the data, how the data is related, what exists, um, you can't perform analytics on it. And increasingly the catalog and the metadata security aspects of it really become the foundation for more and more granular security policies down to the row and column level. Gerard talked about presenting data selectively through gateways. Um, You know, we have multiple services that can help you do that. And then finally, you bring the right tools to the data and as much as possible, process in place. I mean, that's really our mantra is use serverless, use managed services that process in place where you can, but if they don't work for you, use other AWS managed services, or even use third-party partner solutions if that's what fits your needs. But really you want to be able to kind of optimize each of these blocks independent. Um, so another common pattern, um, you know, people thought of Data Lake and you know, Hadoop kind of propagated this when it was Data Lake 1.0, let's say, of, you know, you just have one big container for your data. Um, that works, and some of our largest customers have a data lake with a single AWS bucket and tens to hundreds of petabytes of data. But increasingly, we see people moving to pipelined workflows, whether that's one big bucket and it uses security policies to segregate, or you segregate into multiple buckets. You really want to think pipelined architecture for purposes of governance and um, security and overall data management and efficiency. So you're typically going to have a raw data area where you're going to ingest data, stage it, um, you know, aggregate all your data sources. You're going to go through transformation and catalog. You probably want to have that be a separate functional area, and you can start to orchestrate that with Lambda um, so that you can start to trigger on data events. Um, and ultimately, when that whole process is done, then you move it into the production data lake when you're sure it's high-quality data um, you know, and you want to make it available for use and um, you know, catalog it for different users and groups. And then finally, you may shift that data out to presentation layers selectively as you need to, you know, either things like Redshift, like Gerard talked about, or other um, analytic or presentation tools. But really, you want to pipeline your workload so that you can start to evolve these elements um, independently of each other and really get separate security and governance domains. Keep your CISOs happy. Um, another um, best practice is plan for massive growth. I mean, Gerard talked about um, you know, terabytes of uh, scale, you know tens of hundreds of terabytes. Most people start in that range, but you know, we've seen customers take off and be successful and build a data-driven business um, where that is their business currency, and before you know it, they're in petabyte scale range. So you have to plan for that up front. And some common best practices around that are utilize S3 object tagging. Essentially S3 gives you the capability to attach up to 10 mutable tags to each individual object, and then you can start to do things like security policies lifecycle policies, um, replication policies, data classification policies that are down to the individual object level but just as importantly are dynamic. So when you start to think about things like pipelined workflows or data evolving over its life, you can modify the tags and you know, use that to take appropriate actions on data. Um, You're definitely going to want to think about cost. We have lifecycle policies that help you do that. And those can be driven by tags, so you can get very granular. Or you can do it by prefixes, or buckets, or very flexible. Um, But you're going to want to use lifecycle and help optimize your cost. And then finally, we introduced a new capability called batch operations, where you can manage millions to billions of objects with single API actions and do things like copy them. Um, modify um, security attributes or tags, or even run Lambda functions on the objects and start to do all kinds of uh, in-flight object processing with single APIs. But ultimately, whatever the capabilities you use, plan for growth and plan for data management at massive scale through automation. Um, We talked about optimizing cost. S3 has six different storage classes that can help you manage cost. Um, And so you kind of need to start to think about the use case and where the data is in its lifecycle when you start to think about what is the right storage class for the data. Um, For data ingest and kind of that raw data pattern, Probably going to want to stick with S3 standard because there's no minimum storage duration. That data may come in in a lot of small files if you're doing things like the wearables Amy was talking about and streaming log data. there's no minimum storage size, so it gives you maximal flexibility. Um, as you move to ETL in the pipeline or you know kind of data cleansing, normalization, probably going to want to stick with standard for that. Because once again, there may be a lot of data churn as you do iterative steps. Um, Those may be aggregating smaller objects. And ultimately, you may delete them um, when you're done with transformation, particularly all those intermediate files. So once again, you want maximal flexibility. When you actually move the data into your production data lake, you've got two choices. You can use, as Gerard mentioned, a combination of S3 standard, S3 infrequent access, maybe an archive tier and do that via lifecycle policies, or realizing that this was complex for data lakes where you have a lot of ad hoc access and it may be difficult to predict access patterns over time. They may be highly variable. We introduced a new S3 storage class called intelligent tiering, where we monitor at the individual object level access patterns and automatically tier the data up and down as it cools off, heats up, So you essentially get the cost savings without having to worry about policies to drive that when the data cools off. So that's an evolving best practice if you're using megabyte plus size data files, you're not overriding those files and they're gonna be around for at least 30 days. Highly recommend intelligent tiering for your data lake to simplify cost savings. Finally, you may have online cool data either for data you replicated for data protection or maybe you wanna do model training or periodic reprocessing. You can use infrequent access or one zone access. And then ultimately, whether for governance purposes or regulatory purposes, or just because you wanna keep every amount of data that comes into your data lake so that as you maybe get more sophisticated with machine learning, you can go back and use that for model training. We have Glacier and Glacier Deep Archive. And Deep Archive has really changed the cost curve for essentially keeping all your data as long as you want it you know, for a very low price. So no matter what you want to do though, um, you want to kind of think about the stages of data and choose appropriate storage tiers. Um, Ingest, obviously, you've got to get the data in the data lake before you can do anything with it we have a whole host of ingest methods to kind of match the data sources and the use cases that drive them. The way we kind of bucket this is to think about real time for things like predictive analytics, IOT sentiment analysis, recommendation engines, batch, which would be a lot of reporting data or data warehousing, or maybe where you want to kind of drive optimization in usage, supply chain inventory log analytics, retrospective analysis of things like security logs. And then ultimately, you may have bulk actions which are gonna use that data for things like model training or ad hoc data exploration and model development. So, but no matter what data sources you have, you know, we really have the right tools to ingest that data in a cost efficient, um, time efficient way and integrate natively with the data sources in their preferred format. Um, So one of the use cases I'll dive a little deeper into is batch relational data ingestion, because people have tended to kind of segregate. I've got my relational databases that run my applications, power my business, they're an island amongst themselves, and then I have my data lake for all the big data. But the reality is, A big play is to take all these relational sources, aggregate them together, combine them with other data sources, so you'll want to consider how to efficiently get those in. So if you've got databases, data warehouses, either on-prem or in the cloud, um, you can either use AWS Glue, which I'll talk a bit more about, which is our data catalog and our ETL function, which can also um, connect via ODBC, JDBC connectors, and pull data into the data lake and catalog and transform it on the way in, or you can use our database migration service, which essentially can do a one-time move or an ongoing sync of data. If you've got traditional ERP, CRM type environments, you can use things like our storage gateway, which present a standard NAS file system, or maybe um, SFTP or data ingestion and um, data orchestration tools running on EC2. And then finally, we have Storage Gateway, which um, presents that standard file system. But a lot of different ways to do this. Um, Ultimately, for efficiency's sake and quickest time to results, you want to make this pipeline uh, essentially event-driven. Because if you think about all these data sources coming in, it's not going to be efficient if you trigger an event on every data source changing, or on the converse, you just set strict time-based rules. You kind of want to match the um, transformation pipeline um, and ingest pipeline to the frequency of the data. And so the way we do this is typically through things like Lambda events, which allow you to write intelligent triggers. They can kick off things like crawl and catalog a data set, discover what you've got kick off a transformation job. And if you're using Glue, you can author your jobs, set up your catalog, and it will be automated and event-driven uh, You know, once you kind of kick these processes off. And then ultimately, when this whole step is done, you load it into the production data lake, you want to make it actionable, either to process in place or to load into things like Redshift and update that. But ultimately, make it event-driven to give yourself the flexibility and take the manual touch out of the process Um, real-time data ingestion presents a different kind of challenge Um, s3 has very high levels of performance um, you know very high throughput can handle very high numbers of transactions but the one thing it isn't when you think about all this cataloging and data processing to get it in the production data lake is it does it's not ultra low latency and so for streaming events you know let's say you're doing uh, wearable data you're monitoring someone's health um you know they have something that maybe triggers an alert if they're having afib or something a wearable like that you're probably going to want to trigger an alert or if you're doing predictive maintenance type scenarios so you've got to have a fast path to do this which is typically spark on emr and then maybe a high-performance data presentation layer like DynamoDB. Um, so you take the fast path, but then ultimately you're probably going to want to keep all the raw data, aggregate it and batch it so that you can store it efficiently, so that you can do things like retrospective analytics. And so really this is a very common design pattern, a fast path for immediate um, results and um, you know triggered alerts and analytics in flight and then a slow path for retrospective analytics and data exploration Um, so backing up a little bit there are a couple common approaches we see people take to building a data lake on aws on the left hand side we have a lot of customers who have been doing this on prem they're very sophisticated They've got well-tuned environments where maybe they've written a lot of custom applications, a lot of custom code, and it's a big stretch for them to move that to AWS Managed Services. So a common design pattern is to lift and shift that, where essentially they will take their applications, run it on EC2, um, you know, essentially move everything to our infrastructure services, but manage it and operate it and scale it the way they've done it on-prem. Not the most efficient, but it is the lowest path a lot of times to take complex environments and get them in the cloud and then store the data in S3 persistently. um, And then they can start to transform around the data and maybe introduce to AWS managed services or other third party services that are natively integrated with S3. So it gives them that gateway to kind of take what they've got, get there quickly optimize over time, introduce new capabilities that um, AWS may have developed. Um, The other approach on the other side is AWS Managed Services, where essentially, maybe you're building from scratch, from start. It's your first data lake. You can use our Managed Services, so you don't worry about the infrastructure. You just worry about the outcomes and leveraging our pace of innovation. That also uses S3. Um, Because ultimately, no matter what approach you want to do, you're going to want to evolve around your data um, as your needs change and as your level of sophistication grows. And S3 becomes that common foundation that you evolve around with the data in place. Um, And then another key capability we added, if you're just starting out, um, is lake formation. I mean, even if you're using managed services, we talk about ingest, we talked about security, provisioning the right tools to the right users, that's still complex and takes a lot of time to do right. What we've done with Lake Formation is essentially taken all these experiences we've gained through tens of thousands of Data Lake customers and started to templatize common patterns of data ingest, key security elements and tooling that you're gonna provision for different types of use case and essentially put that with console driven Uh, APIs and templates, so that you can really start to automate a lot of the heavy lifting of building a data lake and start to get very granular in how you do things like grant entitlements to data of which user can see which data, which tools they can use against that data. So this can really be great for POCs or really great for simplifying building a data lake. I'm going to talk about performance best practices now a little bit. And I guess the first thing I'm going to say is, in general, if you're using S3 for your data lake and you're doing the most common analytic uh, workload uh, type patterns using tools like Athena or um, SageMaker, Recognition, EMR, in all likelihood, you don't need to worry about performance because S3 essentially is an automatically scaling system. As you throw more requests at S3, it will automatically scale performance in the background transparently by doing what we call splitting partitions based on object key names. So when certain key names get hot, we auto split your performance scales linearly. You don't worry about it. And you start off with more than 3,000 puts, more than 5,000 gets, Right out of the gate for a single prefix, and you have no limits to the number of prefixes in a bucket. So, for 99 point whatever percent of you, you'll never need to worry about performance issues. Um, and if you're using most of our managed services or a lot of third party tools, they'll use our SDK, which will kind of obfuscate all this data scaling in the background. So, um, you know, the horizontal scaling and The prefix splitting happens automatically. Um, But for that small, small fraction of you who may have specialized use cases like you're going to scale access to a data from essentially zero, ingest a new data source, hundreds or thousands of people may start pounding on it, um, you may need to start to think about prefix customization. Um, and there's a lot of good documentation in a session called 359 that's uh, being presented here that you may want to attend if this is of concern to you. But essentially, you know, S3 will partition and scale in the background. It will give um, responses that will throttle it, that our SDK handles. So you're covered in uh, almost all scenarios. And this is an example of that auto scaling in action where Autonomous data lake, where you have cars ingesting data. Um, Initially, they may be ingesting to a single partition prefix. um, And they're going to be limited in aggregate to maybe 3,500 puts in total. But then S3 is going to recognize that it's throttling and giving these 503 responses. And the API, the SDK, is handling that. But then it's going to start to split those partitions in the background. And you can see that all of a sudden the performance jumps, and now each car gets 3,500 transactions per second because they've got their own partition. So you know this can happen at massive scale to you know hundreds of thousands, millions of uh, transactions per second is not uncommon. Um, Other considerations is use object, uh, optimize object sizes and data formats. You're going to want to use, typically, like most Hadoop best practices, tens to hundreds of megabytes in size. Use a uh, uh, format like Parquet or ORC because they're splittable, and they're compressed, which is more efficient to store, and it can do byte range gets. And then ultimately, consider where you need to use caching and plan appropriately using either EMR HDFS as a local um, file system for things like Spark, Uh, DynamoDB, we talked about that as a high-performance presentation layer or ElastiCache. And then CloudFront, if you're distributing data assets. Um, Another key capability that can help optimize performance, and increasingly more tools are integrating that, is push the query and scan work down to S3 itself where the data lives. And so we introduced this capability, which is really unique, called S3 Select, where rather than get a whole object, have the analytic tool process that object, scan it, choose the source of the pieces of data it wants out of that object, you can issue SQL statements to S3. The S3 service will scan those objects based on that SQL statement, only return the results that match the SQL statement. So it's essentially pushing down the data filtering work to S3 itself. It's on a per object basis. It supports CSV, JSON, and Parquet. And increasingly, it's integrated into common tools like EMR for Hive, Presto, and Spark. And we just introduced a new capability back to that mantra of parallelization called scan range queries, where you can essentially parallelize access to large objects and get a much greater performance boost. Finally, we're seeing an evolving type of use case for data lake uh, workloads where it's not just about structured and semi-structured data, but if you think about things like autonomous driving, oil and gas exploration, genomics, a lot of these have been traditional HPC workloads where you've had to spin up massive compute clusters and do a lot of custom parallel processing. So we introduced FSx for Lustre, which you can spin up a luster, which has been the gold standard file, high performance file system for those workloads, in front of S3, the data lives persistently in S3, loads into the FSX file system, you point that massive parallel compute cluster at it, exceptionally high performance and low latency, do your processing, write the results back to S3, spin the file system down. So now you're taking a data lake, you're taking an HPC cluster, consolidating those into a single platform and building what I'd like to call the HPC data lake. So those are a few best practices. I'm now gonna turn it over to Amy to dive deeper into the security element.
2: Thank you, John. So security is your foundation. We talk about security is where you wanna make sure it's integrated within your architecture. So let's talk about your data lake and how you can make it secure. So you don't know all the use cases that you're gonna want your data lake for. We talk about data at any scale, and we talk about where your company is right now, the applications that you currently have, and where you wanna be looking for trends, and where you wanna be searching for your next innovation. So you wanna make sure, regardless of how you build your data lake, that it's secure. So we've been looking at it a little bit from the workflow here. So we're going to talk about a few best practices to ensure that this workflow is secure. So we'll talk about securing for the multiple ingest input um, sources that you have. You're going to have many types of input sources. You want to make sure they're all secure. You're going to have teams around your company that's going to be accessing your data lake. We talk about the data lake being your centralized source of truth. So you want to make sure that you're letting these teams work with the data lake However, you're giving them only specific access to the uh, right type of data that you want them to be looking at. And finally, you want to make sure that your data lake is private, it's anonymous. So here's a sample architecture that you may have or you may have seen other people have. in this environment, you will see within the cloud, you have an application that's generating data, that's streaming it you know, through Kinesis that you want to store it within your data lake. You also have vendor data that you have out to the side, and a few buckets within your data lake, some data logging, and we have a data engineering team and a security team. So the first thing you want to do with this, your data lake is make sure that it's private, that it's anonymous, And you heard Gerard talk about how Sweetgreen's data lake was also private as well. So you do this by denying access by default. We launched S3 Block Public Access last year. It is how you're gonna want to privatize your data lake. It has four security settings, you can apply it at the count level or the bucket level, and it integrates with AWS organizations that you can use for your service control policies to make sure that the policies don't get changed. So that way that your data lake is private just by default. It's a lot of information that's been condensed into just a, a few moments, so I have the link to our public documentation if you want to read up more about it. If you have more questions, feel free to ask us later or talk to your AWS uh, Solution Architect who can also help you if you have any security concerns. So you've now privatized your data lake. The next step you want to do is make sure that your data is encrypted. Encrypt all of your data as much as possible. And you can do this because S3 supports encryption. We support it in transit. Using HTTPS or TLS, enable your bucket policies to ensure that the encryption transit is set in place. Also, encryption at rest. So this is done through server-side or client-side encryption. On the server-side, we offer you a few different options to handle it. We can manage the keys for you, and we'll use it using AES-256, which is the strongest block in the cipher encryption out there. Or you can leverage the AWS Key Management Services, or KMS, to handle your keys for you. Finally, you can also provide your own keys if you want to do that instead for server-side. Client-side encryption is when you're encrypting your data before it enters S3. So you want to leverage the AWS Encryption SDK if you want to encrypt it that way. And again, if you want to have more read-up about our encryption, you can also read our documentation. So to make sure that your data stays encrypted, we have S3 default encryption that you can enable on your buckets. So this is server-side encryption. Enable it per bucket, so that way any object that's put into the bucket is encrypted by default. You don't have to think about it. It ensures that you stay compliant with whatever regulations that you have. Turn it on once, don't have to think about it again. So you privatized your data lake, is now encrypted your data, you want to ensure that your input sources are also secure. So we're going to take a slight detour and talk about IAM terms. Um, Small primer, you probably already know this, but just in case, we're going to talk about first IAM. It is a free service that we offer for uh, uh, authentication and authorization. So authentication who can access it, in this term, we want to talk about your principles. Principles are the who. They are the users, the roles, the applications that are going to be accessing your AWS services. The first principle that you'll always have when you open an account with AWS is your root account. That is a principle. After that, your principles are probably going to be working with operations, requests, and they're going to be performing this on resources. So these resources will be your S3 bucket, objects, EMR instances, or whatever else that you're going to be using within your AWS world. The difference between IAM user policies and S3 bucket policies is that IAM user policy answers the question of who can do this within your AWS services versus S3 bucket policy addresses who can access this S3 resource. So your IAM policies talks about your IAM environment all for all your AWS services. It doesn't allow any permission by default. Versus your bucket policies, what we're gonna be talking about is your S3 environment in itself. Buckets are private by default and you can grant cross-account access. So an example of a bucket policy for this particular architecture is you want to enable that third-party vendor to put their data directly into your data lake. You've decided that you've paid for this data, but you don't want to actually have to worry about how they're transporting it, and you trust this vendor. So you're going to find your principal for that account ID for that vendor to give them access to your data lake. And so you want to give them allow, to store your data or put the object directly into the defined resource, which is, in this case, the digiroad bucket for that prefix. And so you're going to say, if you want to put a condition on there, you want to give that condition for the full bucket control. And so these are some of the things that you would put into your bucket policy. You would also want to do similar bucket policies for enabling Cloud Trails. Turn on Cloud Trails; it logs all of your API calls, so that way you can do an audit check later and store it within your logs bucket. And then from there, you want to talk about which users and teams can access what data and to what extent. So do that. You want to leverage AWS Organizations. It is essentially what the name sounds like. We assume that your company is an organization. You're going to have multiple teams in there, at least one or two, and that you want to be able to define the policies across the board. So it allows you to centrally manage your policies and access controls. It also allows you to share your resources across your environment. And finally, what is great about it is you're going to have multiple teams accessing your data lake. So in this case, these teams might be from a different cost center, and you want to keep track of who is accessing it and to what extent, and allow them to manage the cost and allow billbacks to their different uh, organizations. So you can do all of that with AWS organizations. And you can leverage by managing your policies attaching to the OUs. So the IAM policies that you would want to define for your data lake. So providing a specific access where appropriate. So we were streaming data with Kinesis to store it within the mobile ordering bucket. So things that you would consider for your effect, action, and resource would be like this. However, if you want to talk about the supporting the teams and giving them access to your resources. For example, your data engineering team, they're only going to want to read the data, right? You want your data to be immutable. They're going to grab the data. They're going to probably do some processing, store it elsewhere, upload it to EMR or Spark, and running some kind of thing on it. Your security team, they're going to want to run audits. They're going to want to read your logs bucket. So you want to make sure that they're only able to do a GET. They're able to read from the resources, and we, you've only defined the resources that you want them to be able to access. So this is what your this particular data like, looks together with those security best practices all in play. It's not an either or an or. You want to use all of them and make sure that you have it all together. So there's a lot about security, and we didn't dive that deep into it. I'm just gonna do a quick recapture for those who are taking pictures out there. So we covered this at the high level. Turn on bot access, privatize your data, make sure that you're encrypting by default, turn on TLS, have your auditing with cloud trails and server access logs. We didn't talk about this, but if you wanted to find out more information, go to other sessions. Turn on VPC endpoint policies. Enable and require for those bucket policies to limit the access. You want to turn on the multi-factor authentication for delete. You don't want to accidentally delete or have people deleting where they shouldn't be deleting. And you want to lock your objects. And if you want to uh, hear a lot more about it, you can attend this breakout session, a deep dive on S3 security management practices. So takeaways from this uh, from this session. We talked about S3 as the foundation for your data lake. John spoke about leveraging a pipeline architecture to improve your governance, data management and efficiency, and you also heard about how Sweetgreen leveraged this as well within their data lake environment. You want to improve your performance by parallelizing the access and scaling horizontally because you never know how your company will grow. And security-wise, privatize your data lake, encrypt everything, secure and specify the access as appropriate. And again, a lot of topics, a lot of things to dive deeper in. At the very top are more data lake sessions. Um, This is only a few of them that we have going on this week. I think there's over 300 data lake sessions. Um, If you want to look at for security, Diving even deeper to specifically about access controls for your S3 buckets is in the yellow. And finally, talking about performance that John was referring to later on this week. And one last uh, best practice for all of you. You might have already received an alert. If not, you're going to be receiving an alert. So the fastest way to check off that alert is put fives in there. You don't have to think about it. You're gonna be asked to complete a session survey. We appreciate your time. We recognize that today is day one at reInvent. So please, if you enjoyed this session, if you found it informative, leave comments, feedback. We appreciate it. Hope you have a great time at reInvent. Have fun, learn more. And apparently there's a lot of stuff here. So we've lost the last slide and have fun, enjoy. Thank you everyone.